Okay, I'll be reading out of Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. Now from Miltus he sent, uh, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from the declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my, my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord uh, Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of all the blood, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by the working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to have the kind of faith that Paul has. Uh, use our pastor to uh, uh, share what you've put on his heart to share and help us to uh, apply it in our lives. We thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. The office may be dismissed. Uh, today we are starting a new series uh, in 1 Timothy. 
Uh, it is on page 1177. If you want to turn there in the Pew Bibles, thanks, Craig, for helping to lead us. There you went. Uh, in song this morning, Dale and Bruce are on a cross-country train trip. Uh, so you can be praying for them. And you can also be praying for Eric Eberlein. He is on his way back with his mother from Boise. So he's probably in like Montana now. And we have some friends that live in Bozeman. They got like a foot and a half of snow last week. So you can all be grateful for that. So our, our series in 1 Timothy this uh, during this season is going to be called The Proper Church. Uh, that warning that Paul gave to the Ephesian elders is to the same church that Timothy was an elder or pastor at in Ephesus. Uh, and as we started out this year, we, we, we spent some time in Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, where God showed uh, us how God's people uh, endeavored to rebuild a temple, to rebuild a city so that his people might worship him. And Augustine famously said that the new is in the old concealed. Speaking of the old covenant, the old is in the new revealed. And Good Friday and Easter, they revealed to us what Israel was longing for. But before we look at 1 Timothy, I have a confession to make. Sometimes... I text while driving. Sometimes I check social media. Sometimes I'll check a sports score. If I get arrested one day, you'll know that they listened to this message that we will post online and you can go and fight for me. But texting laws are not bad. Cell phones are not bad. Cars are not bad. But together, they may kill you. Phones distract us from keeping our eyes fixed on the road, the destination that we get to. And sometimes as I'm looking at my phone, I get that warning. Those lines on the side of the road, the rumble strips, they're to wake us up. What do we call them this morning? The washboard, some of the dirt roads around here will wake us up. I didn't learn that phrase until this morning. Thanks, Carolyn. But when we look at 1 Timothy, those lines on the side of the road are like Paul's charge to Timothy to keep us, our affections and our attention fixed upon the destination that we're trying to get to. Saying pay attention, be proper, endure, as Paul said to the Ephesian church in Acts 20. Don't go down the path of destruction. Resist the enemy. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so Paul wanted this Ephesian church to make it to the end. Paul wants to help this church to live properly. He wants them to wake up. He wants them to not be distracted. He doesn't want them to live incorrectly. He wants them to stay focused, to make it to their destination. Wolves did come in. They spread false teaching, as Paul warned. And false thinking, it distorts our thinking. It affects our actions. It shows us who we really are. And so 2,000 years after this letter that Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, 
will be very practical for us today in 2023. Today, the text will show us the people involved in this letter, the problem that caused the need for this letter to be written, but also God's provision so that we might think properly, live properly, and most importantly, be proper. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Some decade before this letter was penned, if not longer, your servant Paul knew the temptations that would be faced in this church. And um, though they succumbed to them, God, you provide provision for them, the gospel of your son. And so, God, I pray that as Paul communicates to Timothy and Timothy would uh, in turn communicate to that church, that you would communicate through me to this church today, that we might behold wondrous things, that we would give you the glory that you are deserved. God, would you help us all to make it to the end by the power of your spirit as directed by your word. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll see the three main characters, the people involved in this letter. This is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul is an apostle. He's a special envoy or a messenger that is sending a letter. And as Paul went on his missionary journeys, as he was dramatically saved by God, as he went to go persecute the church in Damascus, Paul was given a mission to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he went on missionary journeys and he set up churches in different cities throughout the ancient world. As he was going, he would invite people to join him on his travels like Barnabas or Mark, the gospel writer, or Timothy and Titus. And as Paul would leave these churches, problems would arise because the leader was not there. Uh, and so he would then send letters to these churches to correct their thinking, to encourage proper thinking. So we have letters like to the Romans or the Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians. But he would also send letters to these men who would join him. These pastoral epistles we see as 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the letter to Titus to encourage these leaders on how they are to shepherd God's people. So think of Marty writing a letter to us as Cornerstone or to me as the lead pastor here. This is what is taking place. And so Paul is under orders by God to bear witness to who Jesus is and what he has done. Paul's a man on mission. And the second person involved in this letter is the one who receives the letter. It's Timothy. Timothy joins Paul's journeys in Acts chapter 16. And you see this intimate and intentional relationship that Paul has with Timothy. He calls him his true child, his genuine child. Paul didn't have kids of his own, but this idea of a genuine or pure child, it communicates the idea of intimacy, but it also communicates the idea of authority. But before Paul exhorts Timothy, he encourages him with three truths. You see that in the last line. Grace, mercy, and peace from God. God's the third person involved in this letter. 
where Timothy, he possesses unmerited favor, getting what he doesn't deserve, grace from God. He is relief from the consequences of sin and mercy, where he experiences peace as well, a right relationship with God because of what Christ has done for him. Before Paul rebukes anybody, he delivers truth to his beloved protege because falsehood has spread. Timothy, rest in what God has done for you because you're gonna need to resist the false teaching. So God has delegated to Paul authority. Paul has then delegated this authority to Timothy. Delegated authority is a key theme that we will see over and over in this letter to leaders in the church, to elders, to men in the home. At our leaders' luncheon this past week, uh, we spent some time in Ephesians 5, and I, I, I titled the time Middle Management, where we all have kind of a distaste in our minds for middle management, but Paul says to the Ephesian church that there's three areas of middle management that God loves, to fathers, to husbands, and to masters, to those who are running maybe a company. So the leadership luncheon went great. Uh, you should join us when we gather in May, but the reason why we don't like middle management is because oftentimes it is depicted poorly. But God loves middle management and his economy of fathers, husbands, and masters because they're to love and to lead like God loves with that delegated authority. And so to submit it to God, they are to love like God. We love that type of leadership, right? When godly leadership is exercised, submission is actually fairly simple. And Paul wants the Ephesian church to follow Timothy, who has been tasked to lead them in a godly way, where true submission isn't a burden to the one following. The burden is actually on the one who is leading, representing God in the process. And so on the battlefield of life, standing on the front line in truth, in the face of demonic activities and enemies, that are ready to devour us like wolves. Paul calls Timothy, help this church. The false teaching has affected their thinking. It's affected their actions or their heart and how it causes them to live. And all has gone wrong because of it. It's more about, more than what time they should meet or which sermon series they should do or the songs that they select or the color of the paint on the walls in the church. The false teaching has caused debates related to who leads in the church or how do we endure in the church or what is the gospel? The people have addressed, the people have been addressed and now Paul confronts the problem in verse three. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussions. 
desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make competent assertions. So Paul is saying, Timothy, go to battle. Engage the teachers. Some of you like the idea. Engage the teachers and go to battle. We don't have obvious opponents, though, in this church, and I hope there are not any opponents in this church, but we will engage them if we need to. God is not talking about going after the government. We'll get to that in chapter 2 of how he encourages us to submit to that delegated authority. Remember Acts 20. Pay attention. Care for the flock. Oversee the church. Wolves will come in. They will speak twisted things. They will draw disciples away. False teachers crave controversy. They major in minors. They debate the little things. They're puffed up. They're conceited. Sounds like a fun church to be part of, doesn't it? For the next few months, over our time in this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, we will see char- Paul's charge to be a proper church. We will address the problems of the law and the gospel, worship, church officers, confessions, leadership, care, finances, and endurance. There's your outline of the letter to Timothy. But Paul, he uses and urges and gentleness to comfort. He says, I urged you. It's the same word that Jesus used of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, as we saw in the Gospel of John. But Paul is serious about the problems. Ephesus was a devoutly religious city. You can read about that in the book of Acts and the riots that came about by the gospel arriving to this city because there's a lot of demonic activity in this city. False teaching is demonic. Paul to Timothy, stand before the church, rest in the work of Christ, help the church to think like Jesus, to live like Jesus, and to be like Jesus. And the address of the people, the problem, and the provision are three applications this morning as to think like Jesus, to live like Jesus, and also to be like Jesus. But back to the problem. Timothy, stop the false teaching. False teachings were not minor errors. Their erroneous thinking was essential errors, majoring in minors. They devoted themselves, we see in the text, to myths and endless genealogies. They were not stewarding what God had given them and faith. They were mixing in and speculating rather than stewarding. Mixing in Greek and Jewish culture and overemphasizing non-essentials. Many churches in our area, in this region of the country, have gone down this path. Mixing truth with falsehood. Sprinkling a little bit of untruth with the gospel. Defiling what is genuinely true. The problems this letter addresses are women's roles in the church as leaders, homosexuality, greed, governmental submission. This small letter packs a punch. Overemphasizing the insignificant leads to an improper church, but also underemphasizing the significance leads to an improper church. We need this balance. 
And Paul is calling out this Ephesian church like a good parent, arguing over some spilled milk. Paul wants the falsehood, the misunderstanding to stop. And every parent, right, we've all used those words, knock it off. Paul's approach to the correction is that pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere face we see in the text as well. This is a true love. Paul, to his true child, leads like a good parent, like his father in heaven. He leads with purity, goodness, and sincerity. He's a good middle manager. And when thinking is wrong, our actions become improper too. Look what they do in verse 6. They don't know what they're talking about, yet they confidently assert their dominance. Out of their ignorance, their mouths speak. Sounds a little bit like our world, doesn't it? The ignorant only have a louder voice to stand on, yet their words are still empty. And emphatically, Paul says it is dishonest to teach like that. He doesn't beg. He doesn't appeal. He doesn't try to persuade these false teachers. He doesn't even address the false teachers. He's saying to Timothy, make it stop. Paul wants to wage war on those who are making World War III out of spilled milk. Not thinking properly, he says, is vain. Focusing on myths opposed to proper thinking ignores the foundation of our faith, the Word of God. False teaching causes poor living. It's poor stewardship. And so, look out that window. You can. It's okay. It's 107. Imagine a pothole that took over the whole road. Say it costs $10 million to fix it. I think Royalton is in charge of that. Maybe it's the state, but it costs $10 million. But imagine if the town garage would say, huh, we don't want to fix that. We want to paint our plow trucks, and it's going to cost $10 million to paint them all that we're not even going to use for six, seven more weeks. Riots would happen due to the poor stewardship. Plow trucks won't even work if there's a hole in the road. But speculation is not stewardship. Myths and genealogies, conspiracy theories, sometimes they're a little fun. One commentator says, myths in the New Testament is a negative term, characterizing beliefs as fanciful, untrue, even deceptive. Such myths were often used to excuse immoral behavior. Improper thinking lives to improper living. Fruitless discussions of novelties carry God's people away from true obedience and faith before Jesus. Pet projects cause a drift on open waters. Imagine sailing from Florida and you want to make it to New England and you end up in England. You've, you've gone off course. It's a very big difference as to where you end up. Promoting the gospel is God's plan for the church, not petty disputes and distractions. Good Friday and Easter showed us this in the gospel, that it's of first importance. The gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose from the grave to give us a newness of life, that is not in vain, contrary to what Paul is rebuking here in the text. And so with a good 
and pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul, Ephesus, Timothy, Cornerstone were called to think properly. Second, in light of that, we're called to live properly. It says, don't be a hypocrite. The word there is sincere, is hypocrisy, or without hypocrisy. Our lives should conform to the standard that we see in the scripture. Paul's heart is pure without defilement. It's what drives his actions. Paul's consciousness, his self-awareness, his self-judgment on himself, he says, is not guilty. His inner awareness drives his personal actions, and all of this proves a true and genuine faith, not hypocritical, living in light of the truth that he's talking about. And so true churches think and live properly. And I don't need to tell you, but false teachers are everywhere. They deceive the faithful to be unfaithful. They say, forget the Bible. Follow my teaching. Be faithful to me. But good shepherds don't allow that to happen. False teachers want prestige of being the focus of the attention. The smart teacher with a lot of followers. Look at them for being the way that they are. That's not smart. That's foolish to follow. And by adding to the Bible, they make the gospel about legalism. They give into license to sin. They distort God's word of what it says. They say, well, it doesn't really mean that. Wolves devour churches. And in verse 6, certain persons have wandered into vain things. Sheep without a shepherd not following the voice of the scripture, the good shepherd, have followed poor, improper, unbiblical teaching. And false teaching leads to improper living. And the end of such a life like that is death. It shows us who we really are. So think and live like Jesus. We've seen the people, we've seen the problem, and we'll look at what the provision that God provides is. Paul wants them to be like Jesus. And to do this, he uses the law and the gospel. Today we'll look at the law. Next week we'll look at the gospel. Look at verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Us understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. What I just read in verse 8, it says, Now we have been, we know the law is good. But the conjunction here is a little too gentle. But is a better word. 
And it's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 2 after he lays out the consequences and the deadness of his people, or of God's people in their sin. In verse 4 of Ephesians 2, he says, but God being rich in mercy. It's the same word that's used here. And so I would rather phrase it, they make confident assertions, filling out that last paragraph, but we know the law is good. Not thinking and living property could be a path straight to hell, but God provides an escape through the law. Biblically, the law is good. The law shows us God's perfection and holiness. The law restrains evil. Thieves are punished. Murderers are locked away. But it also shows us how to live holy lives for being holy as God is holy. But it's meant to be used lawfully, rightly, justly. The same word for lawfully is picked up in 2 Timothy 2.5. I'll read it for you. It says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules or lawfully. So this summer, most of the kids will go outside and they'll enjoy time after service. They'll play some basketball or VBS. But it doesn't take you long by hanging out with some children to know that they make up rules as they go. I didn't say you couldn't touch the line. You just can't go over the line. Or that first shot, it wasn't my real shot. It was a practice shot. The law is meant to be used lawfully. Like rules of a game, they are to be a rule or a standard by which proper playing takes place. The law is good. The law is just. The law corrects. Just laws are good. Paul shares with Timothy the purpose here of the law is to be holy. Life isn't a game. It's a matter of life and death. And we must not only think that Jesus, we must not only think like Jesus, we must live like Jesus, and we should be like Jesus. And in verses 9 and 10, he lists out the violations of the law against the Ten Commandments. The first three pairs, they correct willful disobedience or disregard or disdain for that which is holy. Those are the first four of the Ten Commandments. They illustrate how we offend God. The second set illustrate how we offend others. See on the back wall, love God, love others. So church, let's pay attention. This is the provision that we need from God. Let's look at those. For those who strike their father and mother, literally this means mother murderers and father murderers. That goes against the fifth commandment of honoring your father and your mother. The second one, murderers against the sixth commandment. The sexually immoral or homosexuality, literally this word is sodomites. Break the seventh commandment for adultery or any other unbiblical practice towards marriage. The Bible does address homosexuality, so anybody who says that it doesn't is not reading their Bible. The eighth is a breach by enslavers to not steal. Liars and perjurers or oath breakers violate the ninth commandment to keep your word and not bear false witness. There is no question what Paul is saying, that they have broken the law. The law is designed to promote wholesome, healthy, true Christian living and teaching. 
sound teaching preserves and promotes spiritual health, not like the false doctrine that they're hearing. False teaching spreads like gangrene, Paul would say in 2 Timothy 2. False teaching is a disease, and false teaching is debilitating. But sound teaching is healthy. It provides a standard that we live by. It's good for us. In Romans 3, Paul makes it very clear that we are sinners. We sin because we have a sinful nature. But then Paul says this in Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law come knowledge of sin. It's the law that confronts false teaching. It corrects teaching that makes us think poorly, which in turn causes us to live poorly. The law is like looking into the sun on a summer day. You can't look for very long without turning your eyes. It's bright, it's blinding. It makes you immediately look away. I said we would touch base on the gospel next week, but Paul gives us a hint in that last verse in verse 11. It says, all of this confrontation is accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Glory is God's holiness on display. The law is like a sun, showing us God's perfection and God's glory, His holiness. And we will either turn away in fear or we will fall down and worship. And Jesus says in Luke 5, I have, come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so revealing bad news makes the good news that much more beautiful. And the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Law without gospel is pretty terrible. We're all sinners, and the law makes that very clear. Where God is holy, we are not. And as we considered on Good Friday, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, it reminds us, for I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also receive, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Church, our sins have been paid for. Entrusted with the gospel, the false teachings have twisted the gospel. And so Paul must address that which is of first importance with God's provision for the problem. The law shows us God's holiness. The law is contrasted with an assurance for this whole letter. We already talked about that. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope in verse 2. God deals with our sin by making peace by the blood of the cross of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. The law helps us to think properly, to live property, properly, and to be proper. It doesn't leave us in our sins. It's the standard of teaching. It's the doctrine to give ourselves to. It's a sound guide. It's a measure by which we evaluate our lives. And most importantly, it provides us an appeal to believe the gospel because in just reading the law, we see we cannot do it on our own. We need a savior. And so we saw the people 
in the letter. We saw the problem and the provision. But consider those goals that I talked about of thinking properly, living properly, and ultimately being properly, being proper. The law helps us to think properly. The law shows God's perfection as creator and sustainer. When you look up in the stars on a clear night, you see billions of them. Psalm 19 exclaims, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And as you continue in Psalm 19, it starts to then talk about how God reveals himself through Scripture, tethering God's glory to his perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, and valuable law. The stars are easier to look at than the sun, aren't they? But both show God's glory and splendor. And so the glory that you see by looking up in the sky is God's glory on display by creating such a beautiful world that we live in. It shows us who God is. And so take a morning this week, open up Psalm 19 and read through it slowly. Maybe meditate on what these words mean and how my life might line up with what it says. The law shows us our sin and right thinking helps us to have a proper perspective. And so as you praise God for the glory, as you look up to the sky or you see the green leaves starting to come onto the trees or the sun giving you warmth on a cool spring day. We see God's glory, and that's right thinking. To think properly, we must know God's word. The Secret Service knows what a counterfeit $100 bill is, not because they read it in a book, but because they've touched the real money, or they've looked at it and know exactly what a false $100 bill is because they know so well what a true $100 bill is. Paul knew that the false teachers would come, so they must know what is true in order to know what is false. There is only one gospel. And so when another gospel is introduced by Romans or, or Roman Catholics or Mormons or a prosperity teacher you hear on the radio or a book that you might have been given, whatever is the false religion, we test and we rest in God's word to evaluate what is true. And God's word tells us what is true. And so when we are tempted to misinterpret scripture, we trust the church that has come before us to get us back on that right path. New teaching should raise our eyebrows and make us take a step back. Well, what am I hearing here? Is this true? This false teaching is demonic. And when we're tempted to misinterpret scripture, when we don't listen to the word of God, we are listening to the serpent who tempted Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Friends, our answer should be, yes, his word did say. Although it makes us feel better, positive thinking changes nothing about our nature before God. We need biblical, proper thinking, and the law helps us to think properly. Second, the law helps us to live properly. A longer psalm about God's word is Psalm 119. 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. God's word and law show us the way to live. 
life is hard. We will fail. But just because we fail doesn't mean God doesn't require obedience. God's word helps us to not fall in the ditch. It guides us to proper thinking. It guides us on how to live properly as well. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so by knowing the law, we can live according to what it says by the grace of God. False teaching isn't confronted by protest or hatred, which Jesus says is murder, but by showing the winsome power of God's true and tested word. And when false teaching says, be true to yourself, we respond with, I don't want to be true to myself because to myself and my nature, I am a sinner. I don't provide much to bring to the table. I want to be true to Jesus. I want to live according to his word, to his law, by his power, through this Holy Spirit that lives within me. By the grace of God, I'll be holy for God is holy. And when we think and we live properly, we prove to be proper. From the inside out, with a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. No longer does God look at you and me as a sinner when we believe the gospel. He looks at us as if we're his son with a good heart and a pure, sorry, a pure heart and a good, con good conscience and a sincere faith. Not all scripture is about us, even though we like to be sometimes the heroes. Just because David killed Goliath doesn't mean that we need to go out and kill our Goliaths. This book isn't always about us. A proper church isn't always about us. This book is about a God who deserves our worship and our love. This church is about a God who deserves to be worshiped and loved by his people. And being proper is accomplished by the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That was Paul's last sentence as he opens up this letter and addresses the problem that this church was facing. We can't do this on our own, but God has done it for us. Remember the gospel, God saves sinners. And so God forgives our sins. God makes us holy. God calls us true children, like Paul called Timothy. God makes peace between us and him. And so Paul wants this Ephesian church to be proper, to think like Jesus, to live like Jesus, and to be like Jesus. And so Timothy, th this letter that Paul wrote to him, will help us. Next week, we'll dive deeper into the gospel because I didn't want to keep you for two hours this morning. One author I saw recently says, the law isn't bad, but it's not the gospel. It's not as good as the gospel. So I'm looking forward to next week. The law is a rumble strip on the side of the road to keep our eyes fixed on the goal to wake us up so that we make it to our destination. But we have lots of grace when we do hit the side of the road back on track. The solution is Jesus, the salvation that he provides. Would you pray with me?
Father, we thank you that your son came to die in our place on the cross for our sins to provide us the provision that we truly need. Father, we, we ask that you would help us to believe that in the midst of our doubts, to believe that in the midst of our failures, to believe that in the midst of the distractions of the world. God, we ask that you would help us to think properly. Would we be a people entirely devoted to your word? God, would it transform our hearts? God, would we hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you? God, would you help us to live properly in light of what you've done, that we would live and finish our race well. God, the road is narrow. The distractions are everywhere. The temptations are everywhere. God, would you keep our eyes fixed on the call, the upward, the call, the upward prize of your God. And God, we help us to be more conformed to the image of your son, that we would be proper as well, as we will work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that you are at work within us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure, which in turn is ours. And so God, we desire for the rest of our time together to, to worship you for who you are and what you've done to have an exceedingly abundant joy because of the gifts that you've given us through your son. Would you be honored in the rest of our time together? And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.